Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to have back on the podcast Jonathan Lossis. Jonathan is an evolutionary biologist at Washington University and the founding director of the Living Earth Collaborative, which is a unique biodiversity center uh, with Washington University, St. Louis Zoo, and Missouri Botanical Garden. Uh, he's previously taught at Harvard, and he's been a curator at the University's Museum of Comparative Zoology. He's won many awards from the National Academy of Sciences, Society for the Study of Evolution, and American Society of Naturalists. He has uh, been on the podcast before. Uh, we talked about his previous book, Improbable Destinies, uh, which, again, as I say in the conversation, is still, I think, one of the best uh, popular science books on convergent evolution that's around. It's it's still the kind of standard for me. It's absolutely fantastic, and I highly recommend everyone picking up that book and uh, listening to uh, that conversation. Today, we are talking about his newest book. It's titled The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. Um, when I chatted with uh, Jonathan uh, previously, he, he was working on the book. And when I found out that it was uh, an evolutionary history of sorts of cats, um, I was thrilled. And, and I said, I must have you come on again. And we got to talk about it. Um, as some of you may know, I've mentioned in different podcasts, um, I, I'm a big cat lover, um, both for the cats that I have in my house and um, just cats in general in, in the on, on the planet. So, and I there's not a lot of really good popular science books on cats and their evolutionary history and behavior and just a kind of one source for all that. There's a lot of you know fun fact books and you know things or looking at one angle of cats or uh, but just really getting the whole scope of it from an evolutionary framework uh, is not really out there. And uh, I must say, Jonathan knock this one out of the park. I mean, it's a, it's a fabulous book. It's fantastic. Even if you're not a cat lover or a cat owner, I think you'll have a much bigger piece of appreciation. And, and for all of those that are uh, cat owners or cat lovers like myself, um, it'll be one of your favorite books you read this year. So it's, uh, it's absolutely marvelous. We start the conversation by talking about this claim that uh, uh, cats, at least house cats, are semi-domesticated and how they're not... Uh, fully domesticated and he basically confirms this which is which is true uh, more interesting though is that all cats on the on the that live on the planet are not that different there's a lot of similarities with with cats all over the planet which is just deeply fascinating uh, we talk about cats and how they meow and how they purr to humans and kind of minimally to other cats we talk about cat sociality and some of the differences between tame versus domesticated. We talk about feral cats. We talk about the first cats and the evolutionary history of cats. Uh, five different groups of cats currently living on the, on the planet. Where do cats originate from? Uh, different breeds of cats. You know, and then people that actually do the breeding and breeding cats. The genetics of cats. Where cats roam uh, outside. And the future of cats. Again, uh, we cover so many things. The conversation is about two hours, and, and both times, uh, you know, Jonathan's been so generous with his time, and I'm always deeply appreciative when guests do that. You know, he, he, I'm pretty sure he gave me, if not two hours, close to it, 
last time about uh, convergent evolution. And then um, he gave me another two hours uh, this time uh, to talk all about cats and, and their evolutionary history. And so um, I, was, I was very pleased with this conversation. Um, his book is wonderful. Uh, everyone should get out and, and go buy it. And um, uh, as usual, if you uh, want to listen to this conversation and all other conversations, uh, follow me on my free Substack at convergingdialogues.substack.com. I'm also on YouTube. For, follow and subscribe there. Um, tell your friends and everybody about the podcast and get them to subscribe as well. And uh, now I bring you Jonathan Blossus. I'm here with Jonathan Losos. Uh, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. I'm uh, really looking forward to talking with you again. Well, I'm delighted to be back. Yeah, we, we had a wonderful conversation last time about uh, your previous book on convergent evolution. It was uh, Improbable Destinies. Is that the title? I think that's right. That is the title. Yeah. It's, uh, it's still, I think, one of the, the best books I've read, at least in kind of a popular science book on convergent evolution. And we had a great conversation about that. So it's it's absolutely wonderful. Um, Thank you so much. I love hearing comments like that. Yeah, well, you know, I've got a lot of people that have reached out to me when they've listened to that and said that this, you know, the conversation was great, but then they went and got your book. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great book. Um, highly, highly recommend it. And uh, your, your follow-up was a little bit unexpected uh, in some ways and in other ways, it kind of makes a lot of sense, but uh, you wrote a book on, on cats on the evolution of cats. And I, I remember when we talked, you had said that you were working on your next one. And so I'm a big cat lover. I, I have two cats of my own and, and I'm so, so excited to, to talk with you about it. I, you, you, uh, I was able to read your book. It's uh, brilliant. It's fantastic. Much like the other one, there's not a lot of books like this where it's talking about, you know, the evolutionary history of cats and many of the similarities and some differences of domestic cats versus wild cats. And so you um you just have a knack at just creating these really, you know, special books. They're very unique books. So it's uh it's great. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. Um I guess two two questions here before we get started. Uh, just kind of give us your, you know, kind of thumbnail sketch of, you know, who you are, what your background is and what, what you currently do. And then second, why you wanted to write a, this book on, on cats. Absolutely. Well, so my name is Jonathan Lossis. I am a biologist. Uh, I focus on studying evolution, how species diversify, how they adapt to their particular environmental circumstances. I'm a, I'm a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, a professor of biology. I'm also the director of something called the Living Earth Collaborative, which is a biodiversity center that's a partnership between WashU, the Missouri Botanical Garden, and the St. Louis Zoo. It turns out oh, St. Louis has these three institutions that all excel in issues related to biodiversity. And so we had the idea, why not get together and, and you know make the whole greater than the sum of the parts? And mm -hmm. so that's what I do. That's my day job. My research throughout my career has focused on lizards, particularly lizards of the genus Anolis. Anyone who lives or has been to Florida or Caribbean islands knows these lizards. Uh, they're very common, uh, but they're also a great evolutionary success story. There are 400 species of them that live throughout this area, Central America, down into the tropics of North uh, South America. And so I've spent my career studying how they've evolved, how they've adapted, why this group is particularly so successful. Um, mm. So that's my day job. That's what I've been doing my, for my career. 
And so I can understand why you were a little surprised to see me writing mm -hmm. a book on cats. Uh, that kind of comes <laughs> out of the blue. Mm -hmm. So let me explain how that happened. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, this all begins at age five, when my mother and I went to the Animal Protective Protection Association in St. Louis, where I again live, and adopted a, a, a rescue Siamese cat for my dad, who mm -hmm. loved cats, and it was a surprise for his birthday. And uh, the cat was a big hit, and we got another cat from the same place a couple of years later. And I've fallen in love with cats, you know, ever since then, ever since age five, my entire life. I've loved cats. Uh, but as I went through my career developing as a biologist, as undergraduate, a graduate student, and so on, it never remotely crossed my mind to study cats, uh, domestic cats. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that I didn't think there was any interesting research to be done. I didn't think there were people studying cats. And the little research that was being done, I thought, probably wasn't very interesting. So I was happy to pet a cat whenever I saw one or once I settled down to get my own cats. But the idea of doing research on them, uh, the scientific aspects, no way. Mm. And then what happened about 10 years ago, two things happened. First, the BBC put out a great documentary called The Secret Life of the Cat. Mm -hmm. And it basically showed a bunch of scientists in England studying all the cats in a, a village there and using all the tools that I use on lizards and people use on elephants and lions and hippos, radio tracking them, doing genome studies, uh, looking at isotope analysis to what they eat, just studying them in every way that people study wild species. And at the same time, uh, a probably the, the world's leading authority on cats at the time, John Bradshaw, an English scientist, wrote a, a popular book that was very successful called um, Cat Sense. And I read that book, and, you know, I gobbled it right down. And so the combination of that book and the documentary just opened my eyes that actually people were studying cats. Uh, scientists were studying them in all kinds of interesting ways and finding out all kinds of interesting things. And so that, that was a real revelation to me. And then I had what I humbly say was a great idea. And that idea was to teach a class, a freshman class called the science of cats. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that I would, I would, sucker the students in on the on the on the the subject of cats and then i would teach them how we study wildlife how we study biodiversity simply using cats as the vehicle mm. and so this is when i was back at harvard before moving uh, to washington university and we had this fabulous class of harvard freshmen and we did all kinds of great field trips and had a great time and it was really quite successful and i i i enjoyed it they enjoyed it and i think they learned a lot in fact most of them went on to major in some aspect of science well, uh, I taught this course just as the, my previous book that you mentioned, Improbable Destinies, was was winding up and getting published. Mm -hmm. And so as I finished that, I liked writing that book. It was, a, I thought, yeah. a, a wonderful experience. I thought, what comes next? And the idea was obvious. Let's take this book on, on cats and uh, this course on cats and turn it into a book. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. And the idea is basically the same is to get people who are interested in cats and teach them all the different ways that scientists are studying them. And I have to be clear, domestic cats, not lions and tigers, just the domestic cat, both the free ranging ones and the pet ones. Um, but teach them how we study biodiversity using cats as, as the example. Um, so that was the idea behind the book. It turns out it took me longer to write than I expected because there's actually more scientific research than I realized. And you know, my angle on this book is this is a scientist discussing the science of cats. And so I really had to get on top of that. And it took me longer than I expected. Uh, but 
I, I did it. The book is done. It's now come out. And, uh, and that, that's how I, I came to write that book. Well, I mean, you you did a, a great job. I mean, obviously, you're a great writer, but I was I was trying to figure out, I haven't really read a book like that. And so when I was reading it, I was trying to figure out kind of what the the outline of it was going to be and, and what the angle was and all of these things. And it's cool because you start the first, I don't know, quarter of the book just kind of talking about, in a, in a really nice, cohesive way, many of these uh, fun facts about cats and many things that we kind of know or see, like, you know, you know, why do, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about many of them, but why do uh, cats have certain types of meows and, you know, making biscuits, you know, and all these, you know, why their tail goes up and things that if there's any cat owner uh, will know is we see these things all the time and what, what are they up to? And so it pulls you in, in the beginning. And then you talk more about in the middle of the book, you know, about hybridization and breeds and different species and then the history of it. And then towards the end about and kind of some of the things you were mentioning, the science of it, of, you know, attaching cameras onto cats to see where they roam at night and in the day and, and all of these things. And so the book does have this kind of like it grips you, pulls you in in the beginning and it's really, really cool. And then you're, then you're hooked in and then you just want to know more and more. And so um, it, it's a, it's a, it's a great book. I mean, it was super easy to read. And uh, I think for anybody that's a cat lover will love the book. And even people that don't like cats, I think would give them a little bit more of a soft spot for, for cats after reading your book. So it's a win-win in my, in my opinion. So that would be a great outcome. <laughs> so, okay. That's, that's super interesting. I'm glad you shared the story. Cause I, I was, I was curious. I know you're, you're, you're really uh, big on, on lizards, certain types of lizards and, and, and studying them. So I was, I was trying to make that connection. It's like, how did he get to this? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So, so let's, let's kind of start sort of with some of the beginning pieces of it. Um, so with, for domesticated cats, uh, so cats that aren't lions and tigers and, and wild cats, um, many people have said, and I was just curious to see where, where you went with this and is that, you know, for, you know, I have two tabbies, let's say, so two tabbies, uh, or, or other types of, uh, what you would say house cats, people say that they're semi-domesticated or they're not fully domesticated or if the cat was bigger, they'd probably try and eat you. Or, you know, three people say things, say things like this. And you basically confirm that. Could you just, I mean, we can talk about domestication and more of the specifics later, but just I think the the overview. What is it that makes it's kind of the subtitle of the book? Cats that are out in the savannah and cats that are in the jungle and cats that are in your living room and and you know, getting into things and playing and running around in your house. How is there not a lot different? How are there a lot of similarities between all of these cats? Well, many domestic cats are not very different from their ancestor. Their ancestor is the North African wildcat. And we can talk later about how we know that. Um, and many domestic cats look like a wildcat. In fact, I like to say that if a North African wildcat walked through your backyard, uh, your response would not be, What's that Af North African wildcat doing in New Jersey? It would be, what a cool looking cat. I've never seen one quite like that. I mean, they are, they are that similar in appearance. Now, of course, domestic cats have developed different colors and, and hair texture and so on that you don't see in the North African wildcat. But many tabby, like your tabbies, probably look pretty similar to the North African wildcat. So in appearance, 
many cats haven't changed very much. It turns out they haven't changed very much in other ways as well, in terms of their, their anatomy, in terms of their behavior. They're not very different, uh, most domestic cats, from the North African wildcat. And um, think about, for example, the difference between a dog and a wolf. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to mistake most dogs for a wolf. They're just so different in so many ways. Not only their anatomy, but their behavior and so on. That's just not true for cats. The number of differences are, are much smaller. And, uh, and people have confirmed that now by looking at the DNA mm-hmm. and the number of changes that natural selection caused in the domestication of the cat is much smaller than in the process for the dog. And I guess the last thing I'd say about this is just the fact that Domestic cats so easily go feral and adopt a, a wild lifestyle shows how little change they are from, from their ancestors. So that's what people mean when they say that the cat is barely domesticated or semi-domesticated or something like that. Mm. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's – we can talk about the different you know, breeds and things like that. But there's a, a large diversification of cats all around the world. Right, we don't just have like three or four. I think you say somewhere there's this. There's um, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but there's a certain amount of wild cats and there's a certain amount of domestic cat. Is it in the 60s or something like that? There's different of, types of of the species of of wild cats of wild yeah. females. If you there are the number is debated a little bit among specialists, but about 42 species mm-hmm. of wild felines, and some of them are the big ones we we know and love, lions and tigers and leopards. But most of those species are small species that uh, many of them are spotted, but not all. And many of these species no one has ever heard of. The codcod, the ancilla, the, uh, the tigrina, just to name a few. And there are lots of these little feline species in Africa, Asia, and South America. And so there are quite a few different species of felines. Mm. Yeah, but it, what the interesting thing about that and all of it is that there's a lot that links them together there's a lot that connects them i mean in in many many different ways and in, in how they appear but then also in some of their behaviors um and and you you talk about this in terms of their communication which i found was super fascinating i i never realized that cats it's not like cats don't talk to each other or, or i should say meow to each other but it, it you you make this point in the book that cats really meow often or a lot with humans or with their owners uh again it's not that they don't maybe with with other other cats but you know really it's it's with humans what are what are the ideas or the hypotheses that are there for how cats use a mode of communicating meowing if you will to humans so much relative to you know other cats that they may know or cats in their own family what what do we think is 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 up to that kind of way of communicating with humans? Well, it seems from the data we have that cats meow more to humans when they're trying to communicate with us than they meow to each other. In fact, the standard wisdom in the scientific literature is that cats rarely meow to each other as a way of communicating. Now, they have many other sounds they make. They they will growl each other. They will screech and do other noises that they do communicate to each other, hiss. But the meowing is not used very much from one cat to the other. But they do meow to people. And so one of the ideas is that as cats were domesticated, as they evolved to be the domestic cat, they evolved to meow more to people. And one interesting uh, corollary of that is 
Uh, I should tell you that almost all small species of cats meow. It's not something that just our our pets do, that Mm. all small felines will meow. Um, And when you compare the meow of the domestic cat to the to its ancestor, the North African wildcat, they sound different. The North African wildcat makes a very loud, insistent meow, kind of meow. <laughs> Whereas the domestic cat, as a generality, has a much higher pitch, sweeter sound, meow, something like that. And if you play, if you play recordings to people who listen to them, not knowing what they hear, number one, they can definitely tell them apart. And number two, they prefer the cat, the the meow of the domestic cat. Mm. And so it seems that the cat has altered not only its behavior of when it meows to us, but also how the sound of its meow to make it more pleasing. Mm. And some people have speculated that we have a preference for high-pitched sounds, perhaps because uh, children make those high-pitched sounds. And so the cats have sort of manipulated us by evolving a meow that gets our attention in a pleasing way. Uh, but that that is one of the differences for sure that North African wildcats versus the domestic cats is the sound of their meow. Is it is it possible with that hypothesis that it's a type of coevolution that happened as cats started hanging out more with humans that they just started to co-evolve this way of saying, well, when I'm making this sound with, you know, humans I hang out with, you know, I get, you know, food or I get attention or things like that. Do we think it's something like that where it's the co-evolved or, or no? And so the co-evolved I think you would what you're saying is that as in addition, humans evolved to to more respond positively right. to that yeah. sound. Yeah. It's certainly possible. Um, I don't think there are any evidence, any data suggesting that the human side of that evolution, but it's 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 certainly possible. Mm. Uh, I mean, one of the big questions I think we'll probably get into this is how domestication occurred. And it was probably a back and forth, a yin and yang mm. of us re, of 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 the cats getting a benefit from being around us, of us seeing the benefit of having them around and rewarding them and going and kind of going back and forth. And so something like that could have happened. Mm. Yeah. You mentioned also that there's, it seems that the meows for, for domesticated cats w- with humans seems to be individualized, right? So could you say more about that? Absolutely. So most people who've had a cat understand that cats have different meows that you know, the different sounding meows that they use in different contexts. And so um, a, re- a researcher named Nicholas Nicastro was interested, is there a meaning to those meows? Do all cats meow in a certain way when they're hungry, in a certain way when they're content, and a certain way when they're upset, and so on? And so we did an experiment where um, he was based at Cornell University in Ithaca. So he went to a, a bunch of friends and uh, houses and people with cats and recorded the, those cats meowing in five different contexts. You know, when, just when they were content and happy, when they were being brushed the wrong way, so they were unhappy, when they uh, were enclosed in a room they wanted to get out of, and, and a couple of other contexts. And so for, I can't remember how many cats, he got these five different calls. And then he played those calls, again, to people just wearing headphones and said, Guess which context this is. Is this a happy cat, a hungry cat, or whatever? And you know, that's all they told the person. The person guessed. And for the most part, people guessed barely better than random, barely better than just guessing. <laughs> um, and so what that suggests is that even though there are 
different types of meows. Um, there, that is to say, even though each cat has different types of meows, there's no universal language that you can hear any cat and understand what it means. Now, then some other researchers followed up in a very clever way. Um, they did kind of the same experiment, but they included in the experiment, the, the first experiment was just a bunch of random people off the street who listened mm -hmm. to these meows. The second experiment uh, was, again, a bunch of random people off the street, but also the owner of the cat, um, the mm -hmm. person who lived with that cat. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that the person who lived with that cat was much better at knowing the context of the call than just any random person. Mm -hmm. And so what that suggests is that the, the meows are meaningful, but every person who lives with a cat, they kind of negotiate their own private language, if you will, where it's understood what those, those meows mean. But that's on every single case, the cats develop that separately. So that there's no universal language, if you will. So that's uh, that seems to now how that happens. We, we actually don't know. Some people have suggested that. Um, that the cat, um, you know, side, tries out different meows and sees what works in a certain context. We don't we don't know. Mm -hmm. but the fact is that this result shows that that people who live with cats understand much better than random what those cats are saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. As I mentioned earlier, I have I have two tabbies, <clears throat> different ages. One's ten, one's almost uh, five, and we got them at different times and different periods. And you know they get along well together, but they they definitely meow differently, and they definitely have different types of uh, ways of communicating with you know each of us here in the house. Right? It's not wildly different in terms of you know the 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 sound of the pitch, but it's definitely you know the one. Uh, Tabby, you know, talks more to me and the other one, the older one talks more to, you know, my wife. And so it's, it's interesting how they, they foster also relationships, things like that. And you can hear the different sounds in their meow. One's very high pitched. Uh, one is less so. And so it's, it's very, and, and they do it for different reasons. Um, and, and, and again, the, the purring. So I know other cats purr as well, but for domestic cats, they can purr it like a, when they're, uh, content and they're just kind of relaxed and you know they're happy but also they purr when they're hungry as well right so there's these different times when they're purring and there's different types of purrs could you talk about that yep yep i'm glad you 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 asked about that so just as cats have different meows they also have different purrs and i think most people are aware of that that in particular uh, there's a purr that's just a a content purring sound i don't know about you but when my cat's on my lap making that that sound. It's like, oh, life is good. It's, it's great. wonderful. <laughs> but there's also a much louder, more insistent purr, kind of brum, brum, yes. uh, which is uh, often when they're hungry or they want something. Yeah. And so some researchers did this uh, cool study where they wanted to get both sorts of purrs. And to, to do this study, they told people that uh, when you when your alarm goes off in the morning, don't get out of bed. And I guess these are people who fed their cats in the morning. Don't get out of bed. And they predicted that the following would happen. And it did. The cat jumped up on the bed, positioned itself right by the person's ear and gave us this. It's called a solicitation purr. And um, so, so there's these two different purrs. And so then again, they did an experiment with people listening in headphones and people could definitely tell the two purrs apart. And they rated the solicitation purr, the brr brr one, as much less pleasant than the 
other per, the, the, the contented per. Um, so that was, so these two pers really do exist and people can tell them. But then they did something very cool. They did a computer analysis of the audio sound, you know, the spectral analysis, mm-hmm. and they isolated the part of the insistent, the solicitation per that gave it that insistent aspect. They could find just this is what's added. And then when they they digitally subtracted that from the from the tape or from the you know the file, then when they played it again to people, say, oh yeah, it sounds great. So they definitely found the part that was annoying or, or discordant. And then they looked at that in detail, and they said, you know, the digital signature of this sound is very similar to a human baby crying, mm. and um, and so their idea was that the Cats had added that their, to their purr to really get the attention of someone. Now, I have to say, when I read this paper, I thought that was going a little too far. I thought that sounded like nonsense. All right, all right there's, I certainly believe there's a different purr, and you can see the differences. But to say that it sounded like a baby crying, I was pretty dubious. Mm-hmm. Then I listened to some recordings that the researchers made available on the website where they published the paper. And if you listen to those recur- those recordings of a cat purring, remember, this is a cat purring, the brr, brr. You listen carefully. And, yeah, there's a baby crying in there. You could hear it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I was I was shocked, but it's really there. And you can go on the internet and find some of these uh, Google uh, solicitation purr or something else like that. And listen for yourself. But um, so the idea is that humans have a innate uh sensitivity to the sound of, of babies crying. It's something that's evolved through time for obvious reasons. And so cats have taken advantage of that and molded their purr in a way that will get, get our attention. Mm. There's actually a scientific name for this phenomenon. It's called the sensory bias hypothesis. And it's the idea that, that a species will take advantage of, you know, of the, of the sense of the, um, the sense the sensory system of a receiver mm-hmm. to um, to manipulate it. So it's often that males will make a call that females are particularly good at hearing and say frogs. But this is the same phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's 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 another way in which <clears throat> in which house cats probably have evolved to adapt to living to us. Mm-hmm. And I say probably because I'm betting that the North African wildcat does not have that human baby sound mm-hmm. in their solicitation per, if they even have a solicitation per, uh, but <clears throat> excuse, excuse me, but no one has ever actually tested that idea. Someone should mm-hmm. go out and record the, uh, those cat, the wildcats call, but my, my per, but my bet is that they won't have that. That's so, it's so interesting again, how, how, you know, cats can, you know, learn to, to communicate differently uh, with humans or when they're living in, in certain environments, but also, um, how they, how they behave as well. And, and some of their sociality, but you, you make this distinction, uh, which I, I felt was important. So you can tell us why it's important, but between tame and domesticated cats, um, and you can mention the, the, the needing making biscuits here if you want as well, but what is this like tame domesticated cat difference here? And what, why is it important? Well, so it, it is important to understand the difference between a tame animal of any sort and a domesticated one. Um, a tame animal is simply a individual of a species, of, usually of a wild species, that is ra- usually raised from a baby. And because it was raised around people, it is uh, it it behaves non-aggressively, non-dangerously. 
it's it's an animal that's you know okay to have around the house and there are lots of animals that you know if you get a baby one and raise it raise it nice in a nice way it will be a nice animal in fact um over the over the eons people have raised i think 14 different species of cats as tame cats mountain lions for example are said to make decent, you know, tame mountain lions, decent house pets. Now, I'm definitely not encouraging this. It's a bad right. idea for many ways, but people have done it. And this is true of lots of other animals as well. But those animals are genetically no different from their wild counterparts. Mm-hmm. It's just how they were raised that makes them be um, that makes them be pleasant to be around to people. By the same token, if say that mountain lion that you had as a tame mountain lion, then went back in the wild and had babies, the babies would be just as wild as any mountain mm. lion who was raised mm. in the wild. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, a domesticated animal is an animal that has evolved. It, it has incorporated genetic changes as a result of being around people. And specifically, those changes, some of them at least, have been uh, evolved for the benefit of people. That mm. it's not just that they've evolved to live near us, but some of the changes have occurred to benefit us. Now there, mm-hmm. uh, so that's essentially the, uh, the different difference between domestic and tame. And so uh, think of a, you know, a pig or a dog. Well, if you think of some of the changes of, of those species from their ancestors, a lot of those changes are good for us. The dog being so obedient. So being so friendly to us, the pig being fat and producing a lot of food, uh, those are domesticated animals. And I would say fully domesticated, whatever that means, because we get back to the question of the cat being semi-domesticated. It hasn't changed that much, particularly to benefit us, but uh, it has in a few ways. So, so that's the difference. What about this, this, this needing behavior they do in terms of, again, I think you mentioned this in terms of the domesticated or animals that are okay to be with humans if they're tame, but this making the biscuits, right? The, they, many, they won't do it just with humans also do it for their space as well. Right. When they're trying to, many of my cats, they'll do it on a certain blanket to say that this is kind of mine or trying to calm themselves. What do we understand about this behavior? It's very fascinating behavior. It's a, what do we make of it? You know, I have to be honest, it's still confusing. Um, it is. So here's what we know. I think probably all wild feline species, including domestic cats too, babies, when they're nursing from their mother, will often do the kneading on her belly, mm-hmm. presumably to help stimulate milk flow you know, through the nipple to, to drink. Mm-hmm. It is thought that this kneading behavior of domestic cats in other contexts is for some reason uh, a prolonging of that juvenile or infant behavior. Mm. Um, but, but why that happens isn't very clear. Mm. Uh, it's, it, yeah, we really don't know. Uh, it's mm. also unclear the extent to which wild species will need as adults. So all need as 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 babies. Mm-hmm. And there, there are reports on the internet, but, um, it really hasn't been well studied to, to know, you know, whether this retention of needing behavior into adulthood is something that's just characteristic of domestic cats or not. It's interesting. I, when I see both my cats do it, I, I, I never really understand why they do it either. It seems that they enjoy it, but <laughs> it's very, it's very interesting behavior though. And they'll sometimes do it on like my chest or, yes, you know, or yes. my legs or, but sometimes I, they'll just do it by themselves when they're just laying down and they'll just, it, right. it's, it's very, it's very peculiar. It's, it's very interesting. And they don't do it 
all the time. It's like a kind of, you know, once in a while kind of thing. It's just very interesting. But when they're doing that, are they also sticking their claws out? Yeah. Because, yeah. yeah sometimes yeah. you haven't clipped their claws in a while. It's like, oh, this is cute, but it's painful too. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's it's one of those that the claws will come out, but like in a way where it's not not aggressive. It's it's just like kind of, you know, they're it's just um retracting and then coming out. It's it's a kind of back and forth. But it's very interesting, though. It's 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 always nice when they do it, but uh, and it seems like they're having a good time. But um, I don't know. It's it's very very interesting. Um, okay, so so let's let's talk um, about uh, just real quick about their sociality, I guess, with other cats, and then maybe with humans. Um, you, you talk about that wild cats are are truly social, such as lions, and that there are semi-social cats, such as cheetahs. And then asocial cats, which you would say are all the rest in terms of wild cats. Um, so how does how did we discover this and how there's this different, um, I don't want to say a hierarchy, but there's these different dimensions of sociality with wild cats. And then where do domestic cats fit in and how they're social with other cats um, in, a, in a house or in a neighborhood or and then social with uh, humans? Well, great question. Um Everyone, I think, is familiar with the prides of lions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they live in these groups, sometimes quite large. They are female structured groups. They're often the descendants of one female lioness and her offspring, and sometimes several generations of offspring. But the females stay put, and the males, when they get old, uh, old enough, they leave the pride and go somewhere else. And so they'll have these large groups. They they're very social. They groom each other. They lie around. They they communally take care of. Um, of cubs, they hunt together, a great example of a, a social animal. And uh, with one exception that I'll get to in just one second, no other wild feline is like that. That the research mm-hmm. on tigers and leopards and mountain lions and so on shows them to, for the most part, spend, the, spend their lives living individually. Um, and they come together to, to mate, and the female then raises her cubs. But other than that, they don't really interact socially. And mm. I want to come back to that if we can remember in just a minute. That there's a yeah. big asterisk to that question. Sure. But for the sure. most part, uh, most wild species are, uh, are are social loners, if you will, for the most part. Now, the cheetah is one exception in that adult males uh, are males in a, that grow up together, stay together and form a band that live together, that, that do hunt together, and they try to and mate with females as a group. Uh, the females don't live together, so it's not like a, a pride of lions, but the males are uh, form, they're called, they call them bands. And so maybe that's semi-social in a way. And so that's the, the one other exception in, in, the, uh, in the wild cat world. Mm-hmm. So then we have the domestic cat. And the domestic cat has a reputation as being a loner, that they are asocial, they go their own way. You know, cats are just fine by themselves. Turns out that's not at all true. Well, no, that's that's too much. It's true in some ways, but um, when you when cats go feral in places where there is not much food, they do live seemingly by themselves, very much like all wild cat species. You know, they come together to mate, and the female raises the, the kittens. But other than that, they live alone. But in places where food is abundant, as is very common in what are called community cats or colony cats, where there are a bunch of unowned outdoor cats, but people are supplying them with food. So there's tons of food. Uh, 
cats form social groups that are strikingly similar to lion prides, that you will have a group of cats that all the related, is again based on the females, all the related females huddle together, they groom each other, they're very friendly to each other, they even help raise each other's young, they probably help defend against dogs and other things, but they, they're in many respects very similar to a lion pride. They're not nice at all to uh, cats that they aren't related to, but they form these groups. And so it, it turns out that uh, that the domestic cat in many ways is similar to a lion and, it, and can be when circumstances are right. And those circumstances are a lot of food and related females living together over multiple generations. They can be a very social species. It's mm. interesting. Where do, I guess, feral cats i mean maybe you can define what 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 people mean by that but feral cats come into the picture with i guess domesticated cats because you know, you know sometimes when when um if you go if somebody goes to like a, a rescue or a shelter or whatever and they'll they'll get a cat and sometimes they'll they'll do a marking to to show like they'll clip the top of the ear to show that this this cat is feral like they, they, they they're always going to be you know, skittish or they're not going to be able to be really good around other you know people or things like that and Sadly, I mean, you know, these cats don't have a good outcome a lot of the times. But, what, but then there are cats that will live outdoors and and they just don't have a home or, or an owner. So, what is this understanding about feral cats and and how they are with domesticated ones? Well, so I can get in a lot of trouble here with terminology because okay. <laughs> there are lots of different terms for particular cat situations and. You know, some people say that, well, like there's three types and some people say there are 30 types. So wow. just to um, to generalize greatly, understanding there's gray areas and so sure. on, a feral cat usually refers to a cat that has lived its entire life on its own. And uh, usually when it's used is referring to a cat by itself, that living out in the wilderness, um, mm. where cats usually live at low population densities because it takes a lot mm -hmm. of food to feed a cat. Mm -hmm. uh, then there are these it, these groups of cats that live in urban areas, usually, or suburban areas, where people are feeding them. And they're unowned. They, they live outside. And, you know, some of them have been living outside for generations. Some are just, they got lost or someone dumped them, just, you know, dumped them there. And so it's, it's a mix of how long they've been living there. But they interact with people to some extent. They're usually pretty skittish, not always. Uh, but people, you know, very kind-hearted people bring them tons of of cat food and so on. And and so they're living living out there. And then there's kind of all kinds of different combinations mm. of these these situations. Mm. Uh, now, what you were referring to a moment ago about them being skittish and and so on is a cat that uh, any cat has a very important period when it's growing up from roughly two or three to seven or 12 weeks, somewhere in there, different, different authorities say different numbers, where the extent to which they interact with people will determine how friendly they will be as an adult cat. That mm. if you take a kitten, even if you grab a, a kitten out of the, you know, that was whose mother is completely feral living on her own, mm -hmm. get it at two or three weeks and then just handle it a lot and treat treat that cat well. It'll be a very well socialized uh, cat and and be very good living around people. Mm. Conversely, you can take any cat you want, take some Persian cat or a purebred cat or any cat, mm -hmm. and if you just 
don't give it any experience with people during that critical window, mm. it will never be a, a loving cat. It will always, you know, it will it will never be a great house house cat. Now, it varies. Cats vary from one to the other. And I have heard some success stories of people saying, well, we took this cat that grew up in the wild and we treated it very nice and it turned into a, a, a nice cat. And so it it may be possible occasionally, but their experience during this critical phase is critical to how well they will interact with people. Do we know why? What's what's unique about that particular phase between these weeks or whatever? Is there anything unique in the development of the cat that is helpful for that socially? Um, you know, I'm I'm not sure that we really understand that all that well. It's actually been surprisingly um, little studied, particularly in recent years. And part of the problem is to study that you know, in the, in the best way possible, you would have to neglect a bunch of, you'd have to raise a bunch of unsociable cats and, and then what do you do with them? Yeah. Um, so yeah. it's, I can see why that research is probably unethical or at least people don't want to do sure. it. Sure, sure, sure. I should say that dogs have a similar, uh, similar sensitive phase in their, in their growth. It's, I think a little later, just a oh. couple of weeks later, but again, a puppy that doesn't have any contact with humans before I think about 14 weeks of age, will also never turn into a great a great oh, house dog. Interesting. Um, so, very so both interesting. species have that. I'll just, I'll just say real, real quick. Uh, so I mentioned one of my tabbies, uh, the, 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 the five-year-old. She, we got her um, when she was four months old. And uh, she was in, so that when we got her at the, the uh, shelter or whatever, they had we we saw her there and and she was, she was very sweet but they had clipped the ear they thought she was feral and um and the poor thing she she was very sweet but very anxious and 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 um we decided to take her and and they had said that they had found her in a in a in a hoarder home that they had found her no really people maybe it was an abandoned home they weren't sure and she they just found her in a mattress you know under or excuse me under underneath a, a mattress you know, just kind of hiding there. And the reason they thought she was feral is, is kind of the things you explained, this critical period of when she was uh, alive, those, those, you know, seven to 10 weeks or whatever it is, um, that there's no interaction with other other humans. And interestingly, she she's she's made a lot of progress and come a long way. But yes, to this day, she is, she's five. She's lived with us since she was four months old. Sorry, so four and a half years or whatever it is, more than that. She's she's very sweet and social, but she will and social kind of with us one on one. But she doesn't come out too much. She will be very anxious if someone comes over. It could be one person. I mean, you won't see her the whole time. Uh, if you make too much noise, you know, she'll hide under the couch. You know, and again, it's I mean, we're very kind to her. We, you know, she's she has a great home. She <laughs> she eats well and she plays and uh, she does interact with us. But it's it's she's still very cautious. It's, and it's interesting because the other cat, we got him when he was nine or 10 months and he's, you know, 10 now, it's the most social cat you ever want to, I mean, he's super social. I mean, he'll, he'll lay in the middle of, you know, uh, the living room when there's, you know, 10 people around and he'll just look up and he just, he loves it. He, and it's always interesting to think of that. And I, I did not know that. I didn't know that there was this, uh, this period. And that makes a lot of sense. Well, you know, even still years later, she's still. She still has a lot of challenges. She's she come a long way. She's very sweet, but she's just very anxious, though. Very, very anxious. You know, uh, a lot of what we're talking about here and talking about tame animals and so on is really this old concept of nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. it's, 
nature being the genes of an individual have a large impact. And, you know, some types of cats have genes that make them friendly or so on. We can talk about that later. But there's also the nurture, their environment as they're raised. And this example is showing the strong effect of nurture on cats, how they're raised really has a major effect on how friendly they will be. Yeah, I firmly believe in that. I mean, I, I firmly, I think you can see it and you can see the different personalities of cats and how they are in, in certain periods. And um, yeah, I think it's it's always tough going to a, a shelter and seeing all the ones that won't, you know, kind of get a home and stuff. It's really, really tough and how they come let, from. Let me explain the ear clip thing, what that's about. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a program that's widely practiced uh, throughout the United States and the world called Trap, Neuter, Return. And the idea is for these colonies of unknown cats, the idea is no one wants cats living outdoors. It's not a, you know, it's much better not to have that. And so an approach to try to get those colonies to disappear through time is to capture the cats, um, take the ones that are friendly and and foster them and, and get people to adopt them. But the ones that aren't friendly, you give them some vaccinations mm-hmm. and sterilize them, neuter them, mm-hmm. and then put them back where they were. And so the, the ear clip is a way of knowing, oh, we've already got that cat. And, and the idea is that if you can uh, neuter a large enough percentage of the population, the population will dwindle away to nothing. Um, now, it's, I will say that that idea is highly controversial um, because the problem is that um, the cats breed like, well, rabbits. They, they, they can breed three times a year. And so if you don't get enough of the, the females, the ones that are left will just pump out the kittens and the population. And since those kittens, since there's less competition, they'll survive and the mm. population won't decline. So it takes a mm. very sustained effort with a lot of resources and manpower to really uh, to, to sterilize enough of the cats to get the population to decrease. And mm. it turns out there's a big argument about how successful TNR can be. Uh, the data are, can be mm-hmm. read multiple ways. Interesting. That's very, very interesting. So let's let's talk uh, uh, about some evolution. <clears throat> so let's do it. What's the uh, tell us about the first cat as as, as much as we know and and kind of just the evolutionary history of 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 cats and how these different uh, branches and lineages arose and and when this started. Just tell us about the evolution of the cat. Sure. And I will say that in some ways, cats have had a pretty boring evolutionary history compared <laughs> to other groups. And I say that because to a large extent, a cat's a cat. And so <laughs> the, the first fossil cat we know of, something called Proilurus lemonensis, mm-hmm. occurred about 30 million years ago. And looking at its skeleton, it's a cat. Now, its legs were a bit shorter than most cats, but otherwise, you know, if one walked down the street, you'd say, oh, there's a short, kind of short-legged cat. Um, mm-hmm. For the first 10 million years of cat existence, not much happened. A few species of, of um, Proilurus have been discovered, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. Now, the one big interesting event, if you will, in um, cat evolution occurred about 20 million years ago when the cat world broke, split into two lineages. One lineage is the saber-toothed cats. And uh, now that is, if you saw a saber-toothed cat, You'd still you'd say it's a cat, but whoa, that is quite a cat, especially the big ones with those long dagger-like teeth and so on. <laughs> and so they uh, diversified quite widely, and um, there are many species of them. In fact, many 
more known species of saber-toothed cats than the other type of cat, which I'll get to in a moment. And why that is, isn't clear. Mm. Now, one thing people don't realize, I think most people, is that 10,000 years ago, saber-toothed cats were wandering the American West, that the La Brea Tar Pits is full of saber-toothed cats. And this was 10,000 years ago in Los Angeles. So our ancestors undoubtedly interacted with these saber-toothed cats. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, so anyway, that branch of the cat feline tree diversified many species, and then the last ones disappeared 10,000 years ago. Uh, so, they, so they were around for a long time. Yes. Yes, they were. Millions of years. Yes. Wow. Absolutely. Wow. Uh, the other lineage of cats is called the conical toothed cats. Not the most exciting name, but they're, they're, in other words, their teeth weren't long and dagger-like and, and flattened like saber-toothed cats. They were like a cone. And mm. that's that's the lineage that all of today's living cats uh, belong to. Mm. And we actually don't have that many fossils of them through that 20 million year period. And the question is, is that because they were less common or is it just for some reason they didn't fossilize as well or we haven't found them or 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 what? We don't know. But those are the two branches of the cat evolutionary tree, and they've led to the 42 or so species that are alive today. Now, we, the last thing I'd say about this is we can trace the modern living uh, cats share their most recent common ancestor. The ancestor of today's 42 or so species lived about 11 million years ago. And so the species of living cats that are around today all date back to one an one ancestral species from that time. It's interesting how it, it when you describe it, it is it seems very simple. It's it's not it's not too complicated. It's it's very interesting. Cats are sounds like they don't change much, uh, roughly. No, I, it, it's kind of they found a win, winning formula and stuck with it. And one of the things I say in the book is most groups of diverse animals today, you look at their fossils and there's some weirdos that don't look like any right. of them. Like right. sloths, for example. The right. sloths had a relative that was a giant ground sloth that could stand 20 feet tall. Right. Or, or <laughs> crocodiles. There were species that mm -hmm. walked on land and had hoof-like feet. Mm -hmm. uh, so many sorts of uh, groups, their fossils weren't all the same, but cats, yeah, you could say saber-toothed cats are different. They certainly were different in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say, it's like cat's a cat. That's what I'm going to stick with. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of, of uh, I've talked to a few people in here about different cephalopods, and they have an interesting story. But the one branch for cephalopods is the nautilus, and that hasn't changed yeah. that much for millions. I mean, cephalopods have been around for 500 million years. Like The nautilus has not changed that much for millions and millions of years, which is super fascinating. So it's interesting seeing certain parts of our evolutionary tree to to how some just don't have that much uh differences so you talk about the the five genetic groups of cats so i think you start with four and then you you mentioned a fifth one if i'm if i'm right on this it's yes. european uh asian south african north african and chinese am i right on this right uh yes you are yeah well and so tell us about the differences and i guess similarities but how how are these groups different um and, and how we know the domestic cat only comes from the North African uh, cat. Okay, that's that's a, a great question. So there is a type of cat called a wild cat. Now, just in common 
usage, wildcat could mean many things, but there is actually a type of cat whose name is the wildcat. Mm-hmm. And it is found throughout much of the Eastern Hemisphere, throughout Europe, much of Asia, throughout Africa, and so on. And there's some differences in their appearance. The um, the ones in Europe look like a gray tabby cat. Are you, what, what color are your cats? So my one tabby is like a... Uh, he's like a, like a, like a, I guess not a macaroon, like a caramel. Like he's got all the stripes. He's got the brown and the caramel and the light, the light brown. And it's like your generic tabby cat. And then the other one we have, the younger one, she's a gray tabby. She's, she's, she's all gray, but she's, but they have the stripes. They have the stripes. stripes. Yeah. 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 So, um, so the European wildcat kind of looks like somewhere between your two cats in that Mm -hmm. look. Mm -hmm. The African wildcat has longer legs a little bit and a reddish brown coat, um, although it varies across Africa. And then the Asian one kind of looks somewhat in between, a little bit shaggier in places. Um, and then uh, and they've always been known as the Asian, European, and African wildcat. Mm-hmm. And people argued is are those just three subspecies of one species or are they three different species and but but they're all recognized as as cats um there's another species that occurs in the mountains of china called the chinese mountain cat mm-hmm. that was long considered to be related to wild cats but a different species mm-hmm. so um about 16 or so years ago a researcher named Carl- carlos driscoll with a big team of collaborators collected samples, genetic samples of cats around the world. And what he found uh, was, and these were both wild cats from throughout their range, as well as domestic cats uh, living in many places. What he found was um, two things that were surprising. The first thing is that the African wild cat is actually two different groups that the southern ones and the northern ones are genetically quite different from each other Mm. so much so that they are you know different entities if you will Mm. so so that makes four wild cats instead of three and then um driscoll's work hinted at this and then some further work confirmed it the chinese mountain cat actually is related to is a it occurs within the wildcat evolutionary tree mm. that the Chinese mountain cat is more closely related to, I believe it's the Asian wildcat than either of those are to the European wildcat. So mm. in other words, the Chinese mountain cat is a wildcat. Mm. So there are these five different types. And uh, now people argue, are these five subspecies of one wildcat species or are they five different species? And it's for reasons, <laughs> you know, we could talk about it if you want, it's a tomatoes, tomatoes thing, or it's hard to decide those questions. Um, mm. But, and so I should say, this decision was made by by looking at their DNA. Like Briscoll got the DNA and sequenced the DNA and looked at, mm. built an evolutionary tree of relationships based on that DNA. And that's how he came to this conclusion. Mm. So he had one other uh, finding from this from this study, and that was all of the domestic cats from around the world when you look at their DNA, they all group with North African wildcats. So even domestic cats from Europe, they don't group with the European wildcat, they group with the North African wildcat, and the same for Asia. And so what that indicates is that the domestic cat 
descendant from the North African wildcat. What do you what do you think it was? I guess, and maybe this gets to the next question about the role of hybridization. But how, how do we think that these groups that they're genetically different enough to be considered a sub, you know, a, a group or whatever? What in in terms of the the evolutionary story here? What do we think happens that we have these at least five now that we know? Maybe there are others out there, but of these wildcats that they were able to have this, you know these differences that they're they're going to have you know differences in different parts of the of the of the planet what why why do we think that this happens is it just evolution and that's what happens with natural selection or is it something different no i think it's just evolution uh by natural selection and 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 other processes that you get populations that are isolated in different parts of the world and they're not exchanging individuals very much mm. and their gene pools just evolved to become different. Mm. And some of that is that they're adapting to different situations. And so different genes are being selected in the different places. And sometimes just random differences occur. Mm. Uh, You think about the differences among uh, any organism spread around the world that that has been around the world for a long time, differences tend to arise. Humans, you know, before we started moving back and forth, there were geographically based differences that evolve in the same way. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it's just an example of they were in different places for estimates of perhaps hundreds of thousands of years they've been separated and they just kind of went their own way and became different. Mm. So let me ask here, where do cats come from? <laughs> right. Well, so, <laughs> so that's that's the classic question. And the Data I just talked to you about, the DNA studies say that they came, you know, they're descended from the North African wildcat. So then the question is, well, where does a North African wildcat live? Mm-hmm. And its name is a little misleading because not only does it occur in North Africa, but it occurs actually somewhere, you know, down halfway through Africa. But more importantly, it also occurs in in Asia, in Turkey and Cyprus and Israel and Saudi Arabia, areas that used to be called the Near East. We don't generally refer to it anymore. Um, So sometimes it's called the Near Eastern wildcat. But the problem is neither Near Eastern or North African, it's both of them. Mm -hmm. But to say the the Asian, African, Northern, the Northern, (laughs) there's too many words. Um, but, But anyway, that's where the North African wildcat occurs. And so presumably the domestic cat evolved somewhere in that area. Mm-hmm. And we can sort of um, put bookends on where it happened and when it happened in the following way. There is a archaeological uh, find, a site in Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean near Turkey and other places, where they found a burial of a human about 10 or 11,000 years ago. And at the foot of that individual, the, uh, you know, uh, the, the grave was a cat that very clearly had been laid out carefully uh, next to the human. And the inference was that this was a treasured associate of some, of some, uh, of some sort. Now, some people have argued that that shows that domestication may have occurred in, in Cyprus or somewhere else by 11,000 years ago. But the problem is we, we we don't know, we can't tell a tame wildcat mm-hmm. from a domestic cat based on their skeletons. They look identical. And mm-hmm. so it could very well have been a wild, uh, a wild cat that had just been raised from a kitten 
and was not domesticated in any way. There is one interesting twist, though. Wildcats do not occur naturally on Cyprus. And we know that from other archaeological uh, discoveries. And so that wildcat or its ancestors had to be brought over there by people. Does that mean that it was a domesticated cat then? We don't know. They brought other things over as well. They brought foxes over. Foxes aren't domesticated. Mm. So um, so it's hard to know what that means. But that's mm. kind of one marker that maybe domestication goes back to 10 or 11,000 years and in the vicinity of Turkey. On the other hand, there are paintings in tomb walls in Egypt from 3,500 years ago, more or less, that very clearly show a domesticated cat, a cat wearing a collar, living around the house uh, in, in a person's lap. And so I think it's safe to say that by Egypt 3,500 years ago, cats were domesticated. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, did it occur in Egypt mm-hmm. or did it occur somewhere else and were they brought to Egypt? And when did that happen? And unfortunately, we don't have data that are more definitive on, on when that happened. You know, the other thing is, Cats could have been domesticated in multiple different places throughout that region of the world. That this is where the dawn of civilization, where people started yeah. living in villages and, and growing mm-hmm. crops and storing grain. Um, one can easily imagine that wildcats started hanging around human habitations in many different places, more or less at the same time, mm-hmm. and that the process of domestication occurred in plenty of different places. Um, so it may not have been a single point at a single mm-hmm. point, a single place in a single point in time. Yeah. So, so for, for some folks that say like, it's definitely Turkey. Cause yeah, Turkey has a very big cat population. I mean, they're, I mean, cats roam all over Turkey and it's a big, big country. But you have other people say, no, it's definitely Egypt, right? And we have all these things. And basically the bottom line is, is it's somewhere in that region. We just don't know. And we just don't know conclusively. That's absolutely correct. And mm, yeah. You know, may, well, we don't at the moment we don't know. People are still trying to find the smoking gun, and maybe they will. Uh, yeah, we, we will see. Mm, yeah. So you also talk about that. There's. Let me see if I get this right. Seventy three breeds of cats and increasing, and that's more than the forty two wild species of cats. Talk about this in terms of breeds, how we understand breeds and domestication. We've kind of mentioned at the beginning, but how there's there's this ever increasing kind of. Um, uh, breeding that happens, whether it's you know through various routes, uh, and what that means for a kind of ceiling for the evolution of cats. Well, a breed is a group of animals or plants. They have different use for plants, but a group of animals that basically reproduces and 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 produces the same sort of individual generation after generation. That you you mate two individuals. Of, you mate two individuals of a, of a breed and they will produce offspring that are generally quite similar. And so through, you know, through the decades, centuries, even longer, people have been selectively breeding individuals to develop these types called breeds. And, um, and in, in the dog world, where it's been going a little bit longer, there are even more breeds, depending on who you ask, 200 to 400 breeds of, um, of, of dogs. Now in cats, um, there are, as you said, 73, it turns out there are different organizations. Uh, and, and so, uh, people might know, for example, the American Kennel Club for dogs, they're the ones who put on the Westminster dog show, but there are other dog organizations and each organization has its own set of approved breeds. 
And the same is true in cats. And so I believe that the 73 breeds are recognized by TICA, which stands for the International Cat Association. Uh, the, the CFA, the Cat uh, Cat Fanciers Association, only recognizes, I think, they're up to 45 now. So and it's not worth getting into why some organizations rec- represent more than others. But yeah. there are these numbers, uh, lots of breeds, and the number is increasing. Mm. And many of the breed of the new breeds are the result of of new mutations that pop up in some individual cat and then individuals breed uh descendants of that cat to try to get that trait fixed in the population to to become standard in the population so let me give you an example um there's well people are probably familiar with the sphinx which Uh is the hairless cat, it's the one that was in the Austin Powers movie. Maybe I'm dating <laughs> myself on that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a cat that you look at, it's got this pink, wrinkly skin. Actually, it does have very fine hair. It's not truly hairless, but it doesn't have much hair. Well, that is a mutation that causes the hair to be of that sort. And so individuals, uh, just uh, these breeders bred the the mutant cat, the cat that had that mutation. I don't want to call it a mutant cat. The cat with that mutation uh, to other cats, and they started selecting the offspring until that trait um, was was present in all the offspring. And then they, you know, there are other characteristics that they selectively bred for, and then they created this breed, the Sphinx. Um, another breed that was created in the last few decades decades is called the American Curl. It's a a breed in which the ears fold uh, backwards on mm-hmm. the head; they curl back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it gives a cat a very unusual appearance. And again, this was a mutation that popped up in a cat that wandered into someone's home. And by breeding the offspring of that cat, they were able to develop that breed. And so there are lots of different traits, uh, different wavy wavy hair. Uh, there's a, now a short-legged cat called the munchkin, which is the corgi of cats. It really has, you know, from the, from the, Legs up, it looks like a normal cat, and then you look at the legs, and there are these little toothpick-like things. <laughs> and so there, uh, there are lots of other breeds like that. Mm. Uh, there are some other ways that breeds are developed um, as well. We could talk about that if you really want to get into breed minutia. Uh, but many of them are mutations that come along, and then those individuals are bred. Is it? I guess what's the? I mean, maybe this is a different. I mean, this is a different type of question, but. Should we be doing that? I mean, what are the ethics around this? There are lots, you know, there's lots of opinions on this. And there are certainly situations in which uh, developing purebred cats is a problem. And Mm. two of them are sometimes, once you have a breed, those breeds are not static entities. And through Mm. time, uh, they can be molded in new ways by the people who breed the cats, by Mm. You know, the way this works is what's called artificial selection, akin to natural selection. The breeder is simply choosing the animals with the traits that they want and breeding those animals, and evolution occurs. Um, and so the breeders are able to transform what a particular breed looks like. And this has happened, for example, well, in many breeds, but sometimes in ways that are questionable. The Persian cat, for example, the modern show winning. Uh, Persian cat basically has no nose. It's got mm. two little nostrils between its eyes. And some people find it adorable. 
but it has all kinds of health problems. It's very commonly have health problems. And there are many people who think that that should not have occurred and should not be allowed. And so to the extent that that happens, that is problematic. Uh, I will say that most breeds of cats seem to have not have general health problems like that. Now, the other problem is, say you breed a cat that has a particular trait, like the curly curled back ears. Well, to do that, you need to breed all the descendants of that initial cat that had that mutation because mm -hmm. that's the basis of the breed. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to have a very small gene pool as a result, or you have to work very hard to get other genetic variation. And so the problem is many breeds can be, can not have much genetic variation and that itself causes problems related to, to inbreeding. And so there's that, that issue as well. Mm. So uh, there are certainly issues around the development of, of pedigree cats and dogs, and it's very controversial. It can be done in ways that are, um, that are not harmful to the animals, but People have to be careful and responsible to do that. Uh, there's also yeah. another. There's also another issue, and that is, we have um, we have animal shelters full of cats looking to be adopted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Should yeah. people be out buying these cats that, as opposed to adopting a shelter cat? And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, there again, there are are multiple views on that. Um, so it, you know, it, it can be very controversial as well. Yeah, I, I fully agree with you. I fully agree with you. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't know about um, uh, what do they call it? Um, why am I drawing, drawing a blank on the name? They, they euthanize the cats, right? Is, is this correct? Uh, with, with the shelter, is, is this the correct term? I can't remember this correct term, but yeah, euthanize is the term. It's um, it, it occurs much less than it used to. The animal organizations have been quite successful in bringing down the number of, of cats and dogs that are euthanized, but it still does go on. Mm. Uh, it still goes on much too much. Uh, yeah. Part of the problem is getting back to these animals we were talking about that are living outside and unsocialized and people try to adopt out as many as possible, but some of them just aren't fit to be to mm -hmm. good pets. And there are some very warm hearted people and organizations who will take care of these animals, but there's just not, room for for them all it's a very difficult question yeah that i mean that i mean when i first realized i didn't realize that for a long time and then uh, i was talking with somebody about it and, and they explained this to me and i i mean i was absolutely crushed i mean i couldn't believe that that we do that and i mean i understand the complication but it, it really is it's like we, we got to find a better way to, to handle this i mean the same for dogs too or for other animals i mean it's not just cats i don't think but you know it really it really just you know, it's, it's a terrible thing. It's it's an absolutely terrible thing, and so it's good to know that it's come down. So, um, so it's, that, to your point, though, about the about the breeding and everything, there's plenty of animals out there that need a home, and you know, and and maybe we should consider that first, or we should definitely at least consider it uh, before trying to find you know all these different you know elements of of breeding of, of sorts. Um, let's uh, let me ask you about uh, genetics. So, I mean, it's kind of what we're talking about here, but you talk about um, traits and, and genes and how they impact certain traits. So how do we understand, I guess, just generally traits in and of themselves and how the genes are impacted, where a mutation fits there, and then how do we understand these, all of the different genetic aspects of how 
different traits um, impact certain behaviors, whether it's just for different types of domestic cats or certain cats that are um, maybe out in the wild or ones that are at home? You know, how do we understand some of the behavioral traits or or, or otherwise for for various cats? Well, that's a big question. Um, and I will say a couple of things. First, there's a lot of variety of cats in their appearance, their anatomy, their physiology, and their behavior. Mm -hmm. and we would like to know uh, where those differences came from and what is are there genes responsible for them? And if so, what genes are they? Mm -hmm. And in recent years, there have been remarkable strides made in understanding, you know, the, the Human Genome Project has just exploded and yeah. led to great understanding of human genetics, the genes that are responsible for all our variation and understanding how that evolved and how those genes play a role in determining who we are and, and why people are different from each other. Well, there's been a lot of work on dogs and cats as well. And uh, we cat people are a little mad that dogs get a lot more attention than cats, but there's sure. been a lot of good cat genome work done also. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, we are beginning to understand uh, a lot of how, how what the genetic basis is of the differences among different types of cats. Mm. And it turns out that this is interesting in its in its own right, but it also has importance for humans because the structure, the organization of the DNA the, of cats, the cat genome is actually very similar to that of humans. And so mm -hmm. we can learn a lot about human DNA by looking at cats and vice versa. And there are in fact, even some medical conditions, medical slash veterinary conditions that seem to be caused by essentially the same gene in, in both humans and cats. Mm. So the work, uh, the research not only is um, satisfying our curiosity about cats, but also has important implications for humans, um, mm. as well as for cats, because they're trying to find the genetic basis of many of diseases that various cats tend to have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this move, this work is just zooming along, and they keep on finding more and more genes that cause particular conditions, whether it's a disease or a physical appearance in cats. The last I saw, the number was up to I think 150 different genes, mm. and um, so probably the biggest success story so far is uh, a gene that caused a kidney problem in Persian cats uh, called called polycystic kidney disease. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. And uh, give me one second. I'm going to check to make sure I got the Yes, polycystic kidney disease. It turns out that it used to be extremely common in Persian cats. And something like 37% of them would have this. And this was, at this time, the Persian cat was the most popular breed of cat in the world. And so this made it the most significant cat disease that we knew of. And scientists discovered the gene, it's a single mutation in a single gene that causes this disease. And this is uh, hugely important for two reasons. Uh, you could go out and test all of your Persian cats and find out, do they have uh, mm -hmm. the allele? The, that, are they carrying that mutation? Yeah. And if so there are a couple of things you can do. One is you can uh, be on the, look, on the lookout for this disease to develop or even start treating the cat in ways, preventative ways, even before the disease develops and so help treat the cat early on. In addition, 
you know which cats not to breed. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a carrier. Do not breed that cat. And as a result, the the frequency of this uh, of this mutation in the Persian cat population has plummeted. They've mm-hmm. gotten rid of the vast majority of the cats of of this uh, of this uh, this mutation in Persian cats. Mm-hmm. Now, it turns out that there is a um, there's a, a sequel to that. It turns out humans have the same disease, more or less. Wow. And so we can go back and forth between understanding how the how the gene, the mutation works in cats and in humans and inform each other. That there is a, um, let me see if I have this right. They came up with a new diet for Persian cats that uh, that have this disease that doesn't, that's good for the, the, their kidneys. And now they're wondering, well, maybe that shit would work on humans as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is actually interchange between you know it's not just for, it's not just good for cats it actually can be good for humans as as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the I mentioned the Munchkin cat the one with the very short legs. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that the mutation that causes that may well have the same effect in humans. There's some evidence that it does, and so again, wow. uh, we can learn a lot about a human condition from these studies of cats. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, also, these researchers are finding traits that aren't of disease relevant to cat disease or human disease, but just cause the trait that we're talking about. That there are some cats that have a particular particular type of wavy hair. Mm. They found the gene that causes that wavy hair. They found mm. the gene that causes the the sphinx to be hairless, and so on. And so we're getting a a much better appreciation of how the genes of of these cats cause these various conditions. Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's it really grounds it in something that's. Uh, tangible and really important kind of work for cats and then what we can learn from cats uh, as as uh, um you know fellow fellow mammals um I, I, before i come to the 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 last few chapters in the book which were super interesting about what a- outdoor cats do and how we can track them and understand and all that some some fun fun chapters in there and some of the studies that were there which you mentioned earlier i wanted to ask about <clears throat> just more about um cats in terms of personality a lot of people talk about cats with personality. I'm not sure if there's a lot of work or study that's been done on trying to, again, personality is hard to measure with humans, much less other animals. It does seem like they have, I mean, of course, you know, there'll be those very obnoxious uh, think pieces that say why why cats are assholes or, you know, all these you know, horrible tropes that people have about cats. And what what do you, what are your thoughts? I, I don't think you talk about it much in the book and, and maybe there's just not a lot of research out there, but this idea about their how how they they work in terms of their personality their personality functioning how what their individualized personalities are how they work you know or or operate i should say with um you know their their fellow humans they live with in a house but uh, maybe strangers that come and visit or just how do we understand i'm thinking i'm talking about domesticated cats at this point um you know when we say they have a lot of personality or, you know, they like to just, you know, they, they, they go to uh, the beat of their own drum kind of thing. What, what do we understand about cats in terms of their quote unquote personality? Well, you're absolutely right. Cats, one cat from the next can vary greatly in its behavior, what we call its personality, how, how, um, you know, to, to anthropomorphize, to put human labels on it, how bold they are, how cautious, how adventurous and, and so on. There's a lot of variation from one cat to the next. Um, as we've talked about earlier, a lot of it has to do with how they're raised, their environment, that you raise cats in different ways and it will affect what they're like as an adult. 
Um, but it's also true that there are genetic differences. And we can see that by looking at breeds because different breeds of cats do, on average, have different behaviors. And so that must be a, a uh, effect of the genetic differences among them. And so, you know, like most traits, it's a combination of both genes and environment. And so you look at different breeds of cats. Some are, are very loving. Some are just layabouts that will just lie in your arms all day. Some are extremely active. Mm -hmm. And uh, scientists are now trying to get at the genes underlying these behaviors. And that's, you know, that's a little more difficult than some other things. But there certainly are genetic differences that are responsible for um, for, for behavioral differences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if I can get back to a question you asked a, a moment ago about the issues with, um, with pedigreed cats and breeding them, one thing that uh, that John Bradshaw, the cat scientist in England I mentioned at the outset, who wrote Cat Sense, has pointed out, and I think he's absolutely correct, is we need to develop cats that are uh, that are made for modern day living. And in mm -hmm. particular, a big problem with many cats is they want to go outside, and when they get outside, they go hunting and they kill mm -hmm. lots of birds and mm -hmm. yeah and, and other animals. Mm -hmm. And in an ideal world we would select for cats that don't want to do that, that mm -hmm. you would. And I'm firmly convinced as Bradshaw is that we could develop a breed of cats that was a, not interested in hunting and would be very happy living in a little apartment. Um, so there is a, absolutely a role for doing this sort of controlled breeding to develop a type of cat, which would be essentially a breed with the traits that we really want them to have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is what we've been doing for dogs for a long time. And this is what it will, t you know, when we completely succeed at that, th then cats will be more fully domesticated, at least those cats that to which this occurs. But but that is a positive role of developing breeds and selective breeding, breeding cats for traits that are beneficial uh, for them as they interact with people. Yeah, yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, there was this big report that some very large number, was, I was floored, uh, of, of, um, uh, the, the I guess is the fatality rate of birds was cats. Like cats are out there killing birds and eating them, and and I was I was like, oh my goodness! Like you know, I, I mean, we know that that happens. I remember when I was a kid, you know, we we had an outdoor cat, and he would you know he would bring animals to the front front porch, and he'd be like, here's my you know quote unquote trophy. Here's the squirrel and the mouse and and the and the birds, and it's and it's like, but then when you read the numbers, and it's like it's a big problem. Like birds are getting killed pretty significantly by cats. The numbers were very big. And yeah. there, there is no doubt that in some parts of the world, cats have been a huge problem causing species to go extinct. This has happened mm -hmm. on oceanic islands throughout mm -hmm. the Pacific and elsewhere. Where we have all these animals, usually birds, that have no familiarity with something like a cat, you know, mm -hmm. through their evolutionary existence. And so you put a cat there, a master predator, they just go to town. Yeah. In Australia, this is a huge, uh, huge issue as well. And it's ongoing today uh, because they have probably a couple of million of feral cats living throughout the continent. And there are lots of small species of mammals, also birds and other things only occur in Australia that are really jeopardized by these cats. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I agree with your point about how do we have cats in a modern society we as you as, as you mentioned we've done that with dogs and so i think that's important which leads to the next question you, you talk about the in the couple of chapters about 
some of the studies that have been done of you know putting kind of cameras on cats and and trackers and trying to see what they're up to and what they're doing and just talk a little bit about some of those studies and the research you did about outdoor cats where they go where they roam what are their behaviors outside what are they what are they up to what are they what are they doing when they're out well, this is a fascinating thing it's actually been uh, done in a number of different ways and so there's two different sorts of research one is you put a little tracker on a cat and you can just see where it goes. It's usually a little device that just transmits the cat's location that you put on a harness or on a collar. And you can buy these commercially now, and you can actually get one and, and get, download the app on your phone and, and see where your cat is going. Well, scientists have done that um, for pet cats, just to get an idea of where pet cats go, those that are allowed outside. And um, also it's been done to some of these TNR colonies to see these cats that live outdoors all the time what where they're going and it's also done on on just feral cats in australia and elsewhere uh, the other thing they do is they put little cameras around the collar of the cat and so the cat goes out and um you, you get, it comes back you get the camera back and you download the the files and you get a cat's eye view of what it's been doing out in the world and that has um gives just a remarkable view of of uh, what they're doing. And, and, you know, cats are, are notorious for being so secretive. And so if you've ever tried to follow a cat around, have you ever tried to follow your cats outside? You know, no, uh, I haven't followed my cat around outside. They're not really outdoor cats. We let them out in the backyard and they, they, they do enjoy it. Um, but they, one of the cats, the one that I was telling you about earlier, the one that we got when she was quite small, sometimes she'll stand outside and and she'll be in the backyard and she'll watch all the birds and she'll make like this clicking noise with her throat, right? This this clicking of like this, like almost like this anticipatory, like wanting to like <laughs> to pounce, right? Um, and the other one just kind of watches and enjoys it. But um, we do uh, usually if we if we if we're um, you know out of town or whatever, we'll have a camera inside the house. And so we'll just see what they're up to. Ah, I mean, what what are, what are they doing when they're inside the house? And you know, what are their kind of activities? And you know, it's it's not really anything you know exciting per se. Usually, you just see them laying around in the sun, or they'll be they'll move from one chair to a couch, or they'll move you know when they get hungry, or you know, there's they have these kind of routines. But so that's about the closest I've done. I've I've never. Well, like I said, when I was growing up, we had an outdoor cat, and I would have loved to have done that because he he would he would be out sometimes for days, and we thought, oh, he's gone, he's not going to come back, and then he'd come back, and yeah, like I said, a lot of times he'd just bring us animals. I mean, he was a hunter; he was absolutely a hunter. So it's interesting. One time he got into a fight, and he had a he had an injury, and you know, as, as it happens with outdoor cats, so it's interesting to see. Um, what they're up to. And so if, if you do are able to, you know, have a camera on them, it'd be super fascinating to see. Have, have you done this with, with your cats or no? I've done that a little with my cats. Um, but there was this fabulous study at the university of Georgia where they put them on cats and they found all kinds of, of fascinating things. Um, and, and it's also been done on, on wild cats. And, um, you know, I, I'm just thinking of this, this, uh, university of Georgia study. Um, one cat, uh, had a collar on it and uh, it's walking along and it looks up, it's at night. You can tell in the black, it looks up and it's looking at an opossum that is on a, it, on, it's on a patio. And so the opossum's up on the railing on, you know, the, the handrail and the cat's looking at it, and the opossum goes walking away 
and the cat's following the opossum. And then the opossum disappears because there's a window that's very bright. And so you can't see the opossum in front of the window because the window's so bright. And then all of a sudden the opossum is right in front of the cat. And like, how did it get there? And uh, they're both startled, I think. And there's they're moving around and then the, the opossum waddles away. And it just shows you this interaction that, you know, the the researchers titled that little clip, which they put online, you know, fight with an opossum. I don't think there was fighting. There was no growling, no hissing. I think they just kind of blundered into each other. Mm -hmm. And then another cat is underneath a car growling at a dog. Um, and, uh, you know, perhaps one of my favorite ones is there is a cat that is on a street and it runs, you can, you know, you can, you can sort of see what's going on. It runs across the street and ducks into a sewer, uh, a sewer hole. Uh, you know, a, what do you call it? Where the water goes in. Yeah. And it jumps down to the bottom of the sewer, which is about five or six feet, I'm guessing. And then starts walking through the sewer, through this corrugated metal pipe for, I'm guessing, 50 yards. And then it turns to the left and looks. And you can, you can see it looks, it looks back. And you can almost think in his mind, is this a good idea? Maybe not. And it turns around and goes back and jumps back up on the street. Uh, <laughs> and so there, there are all these vignettes of these cats' lives, and, uh -huh. <laughs> which is really fascinating, seeing many things that you, you just would never get the chance to see. Now, the message of, of that study and also the study where they put the, the trackers on is cats do a lot of stupid things that... Uh -huh. You know, getting in that sewer, what if there'd been a flash, you know, a thunderstorm or something? That cat would have been in big trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, they find that cats, you know, often cross roads much more than you would expect. And they get on roofs, they get underneath cars, and they do all kinds of risky stuff. Mm -hmm. And it really highlighted how dangerous it is to let your, your cat outside, which is one of the messages that the researchers uh, reported. Mm -hmm. Now, there was also a funny thing from these from the cat trackers. No, it was also the cameras, actually. Um, they found cats, these are pet cats, entering other people's homes. And, uh, <laughs> and you, know, you could clearly see it. And there's one, one um, the, the researcher told me this. She said there was one time where uh, the cat wearing the camera went in the other person's home and the owner of that home held up a phone to the cat, like, like you know, phone calls for you. <laughs> what was going on there? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but it, it turns out that sort of phenomenon is not unusual either. It's, it's so interesting. I mean, you can kind of hear like the whole things of like, you know, cats have nine lives and, you know, how they're, they're kind of, you know, curiosity and all these things. But it's interesting how cats will, they'll get into stuff. And there's this, there's this, I, I've seen it in maybe different ways, but like cats have this mischievous nature to them, which is really, I find it endearing. Maybe other people don't like it, maybe, but. It's interesting, you know, what cats are are doing, whether they're just house cats or they're outdoor cats or or, or they're, they're feral cats. So it's really interesting research to also understand their behavior. And then to your point of how dangerous it is, I always think about um, when it's really extreme weather as well, when it's really cold or it's really hot, it's poor cats, you know, all animals really that, you know, like dogs or, as well, but they're... I mean, they can really suffer. They can die in of extreme conditions, and so I, I always worry about that too. So, so. Yep, yep, absolutely true. Yeah. So the last uh, question I have here is is kind of how you end the book is the future of cats, right? What does that future look like? You talk a little bit about 
uh, CRISPR and, and genetic engineering could be playing a potential role. And I, I think you mentioned that earlier. Um, and there's some ethical concerns there. You know, more new breeds, you know, how do, do feral cats become more wild? Uh, so you can tackle any or all of those things or or just kind of unpack what are the what is the future of cats, whether they're living with humans or or not? What what does it look like? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because I think that cats are poised to move in multiple different directions. Um, on the one hand, there are all these cats that are living outside. They're unowned cats, and they're getting by on their own. Some of them are, and and just living the basically the wild cat lifestyle. And if you think about what is happening, well, where do new pet cats come from, other than pedigreed cats, which are a minority of cats that people have, most cats come from shelters and other places like that. Mm. And, and because most, most cats in the United States, pet cats are neutered. And so pet cats are not reproducing themselves. Uh, for the most part, the pet population keeps on being augmented by these stray cats that are caught and those that are socialized become pets. What that means, perversely, at least possibly, the data on this are they're very limited, is that we are taking out of the wild those cats that are easiest to catch and that are most likely to hang around people, which means that we are selecting for wild cats. The natural selection is favoring those cats that are so afraid of us that they get nowhere near a trap and they don't want to have anything to do with people. So on the one hand, the evolutionary pressure that we are putting on these cats, these these outdoor unknown cats, is we're selecting for them to get less friendly, less tolerant of people, because the ones that that are, are like that, we're just removing them from the breeding population. But on the one hand, we're encouraging those cats to evolve to back towards their ancestors of being wild cats. Mm. On the other hand, we are uh, developing new breeds, as we talked about, and more new breeds will probably be developed. And uh, some of these new breeds are, are important to move forward, that we can select breeds that are beneficial in many ways to make you know, even better pets. And ideally, you know, ones that don't hunt. It's possible by, by breeding ones, or cats that are happy to, to sit in your lap and purr contentedly. And so in that sense, we could, as I mentioned before, fully domesticate at least some cats and, you know, make them change them in the ways we want them to, to turn into the animals that we would like. That could happen as well. Um, and on the, um, and yet, so I, I want to mention one interesting thing that is going on and um, has to do with CRISPR, which is yeah. controversial. Yeah. Um but there is a now I have a little fun with what might be done with cat breeding, but actually people are, are working on CRISPR in cats right now for a very uh, important reason, and that is cat allergies. That something like twenty percent of the American public are allergic to cats. Is it that high? Twenty percent. That's somewhere maybe fifteen to twenty percent. Wow, that's still a lot. Most yes, it is. I was surprised myself. Yeah. Uh, most people who are allergic, it's not a big deal. You know, you have sniffles and sneezing and maybe you can't stay around. But for some people, it's really bad news. They mm -hmm, take mm -hmm. the hospital from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what causes cat allergies is um, cats produce a protein in their saliva and they lick themselves 
and then the protein dries up and becomes dander and floats into the air and becomes an air a dust mite and so on. What's the name of this again? It's uh, uh, it, it's called it's called Feldy one, a feline okay. feline domesticus. I should know this allergen one, something like uh -huh. that. Uh -huh. um, and but it's 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 made by a single gene. Scientists have discovered really? this. Huh. Yes. And so the idea the scientists have is, can they produce a cat that doesn't produce the the allergen, the the protein that causes people to be allergic? Um, could and in particular, could you manipulate that gene so that it didn't work, so it failed to produce the the allergen? And so that's what people are are working on right now. Um, now, there's two. There's one problem with that, and that is, well, what if this protein actually does something that's important for the cats? And so, by by making the gene non-functional, maybe you're going to cause health issues. Um, we don't know whether that's true or not, but it is known that cats can vary widely in how much protein they produce, from lots of it to very little. And so, and this is just naturally occurring variation from one cat to the next, which kind of suggests that that the protein can't be that important because if it were the ones that don't produce very much wouldn't be healthy. And there's, there's no evidence that this is the case. Uh, nonetheless, this needs to be studied, uh, studied much more carefully, but it does lead to the prospect that, that using techniques like CRISPR, one could develop a cat that didn't cause any allergies. Mm. Now, I do, do want to say there are actually two ways to do this. Mm. Uh, one way would be to, to change the, the genes in the cat's eggs and sperm so it gets passed on to the next generation. And that would actually essentially be a breed of cats that were not allergen free. Um, the problem commercially for that is that once the company has created those cats, how are they going to make any money? Because once those cats are out breeding, you know, they, they would, the company would have to get into the breeding business and it would be a big mess, you know, unless they could like big ag somehow get a royalty on every cat. Anyway, they're not doing that. The other way of doing it is to inject, find a way to inject the salivary glands with this uh, with this CRISPR DNA and just change the DNA in the salivary gland so the cats cannot produce the protein, but yet they don't transmit that to the next generation. Um, I'm getting into the weeds. The point is that, oh, that's great. That, that, that CRISPR, you know, there's a lot of controversy, but CRISPR could produce a cat that would cause a lot of benefit, lead to a lot of benefit by getting rid of, of cat allergies. And so that's research that's going on. Now, it turns out that CRISPR has been conducted on many species of mammals uh, mm -hmm. from uh, many different ones, monkeys, possums, and many others, dogs, but not on cats. And I don't know why that is. And so may, maybe there's some issue with cats that it won't work. Um, we don't know yet. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's ongoing work. Another way to shape the, the cat of the future. But I, I want to, if I can uh, segue to a broader question, we're yeah. just talking about the next century or two, but um, what about a few millennia from now? Um, uh -huh. Uh -huh. You know, humans are messing up the planet in major ways and causing yeah. all kinds of extinction of species, and we're making a huge mess of it. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we will get past this, <clears throat> excuse me, and Earth will recover. You know, unless we completely annihilate the planet, I mean, we're probably talking thousands of years from now, Natural systems will recover and ecosystems will restore themselves. Who knows what wild species of felines will be left? Will tigers have made it? Lions? Will the 
African wildcat, we don't know. Many of them will go extinct. Some of them, maybe not. Uh, but we do know this. There will be cats everywhere, domestic cats. They are you know, on just about every place that humans occur. And I think it's very likely that when the planet does recover and evolutionary processes kick back in again and start producing new species, the domestic cat will be the source of many new species. You could imagine them adapting, you know, live in the deserts of Australia and another species evolving in some island with a big mountain. And I suspect that down the line, uh, the descendants of the domestic cat will lead to a, a diverse group of species that evolve to take advantage of the opportunities they experience. It's it's an interesting point. It reminds me of um uh it's a while ago now, but I had on the podcast uh Mark Beekoff and uh Jessica Pierce. Yes. And they wrote this they wrote this interesting book. It's a short book. I mean it's like a coffee-sized book called um A Dog's World or something like that. And it basically talks about like what how would dogs, because they've been um artificially selected in, in many ways and they're so used to living with humans now for a long time if humans weren't on the planet uh if we go extinct what will happen to dogs and what would that be like and how would they what what would their evolution continue to look like without humans and kind of having these types of you know wild types of dogs and it's a, it's, it's not a long book it's, it's it's really like a thought experiment but understanding kind of some of the mm, evolutionary history of 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 dogs up to up to to now and how they are now and dogs that don't the few dogs that don't live with human um and what that would look like in the future and it's interesting right it kind of it, what you're saying here about the future of cats if 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 humans aren't around um they'll still keep going likely and they'll still be around in different places but what that would look like uh is, is very very interesting which is nice because it kind of takes away mm, this kind of human-centered thing uh, and says that you know cats are have been existing, you know, before us, and they probably will after us. Um, and so it's 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 really interesting to think about, you know, your your house cat, and they got all their uh, DNA inside of them that they can live with you, but they can live without you too, right? <laughs> it's, you're absolutely correct, and and yeah, many cats would do just fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's interesting to think how they might evolve given the chance you know if we are gone it's a fascinating I, i've seen that book i haven't read it carefully but it's a, a fascinating idea yeah the same, the same applies to cats and you can imagine that there are many types of dog breeds and cat breeds that could never survive in the wild you know mm -hmm. these, yeah. like the french bulldog and the persian cat with all the the problems breathing mm -hmm. put them out in nature they're not going to last a minute um, right. all these long-haired cats will just get matted but um, many others could do just fine and who knows what would happen? Yeah, yeah, and it's just, it's very interesting to to think about. Well, the book is called "The Cat's Meow: How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa," um, and this is out through Viking, which I think is a, a, a imprint of um, Penguin Random House, uh, and it's out everywhere. And um, where is the best place for for people to find to to find you and and uh, and your work? Well, um, I have a website where yeah, I have a very unusual last name, Lossus, L-O-S-O-S. -S, so I'm easy to Google up. I have a website and have a an email there. And so that's probably the best way best way to find me. Uh, that's great. Well, Jonathan, I mean, it's always so much fun talking to you. I had a really, really good time talking to you last time and a really good time talking to you this time about uh, an animal we both love and care about. And 
you've done all the hard work writing a fantastic book about it and so getting to talk to you about it um, just makes me uh, super happy and I'm, I'm very certain all of uh, my listeners that are big cat lovers will, will eat this conversation up so um, I hope everyone gets out there and gets your book and they listen and so I just uh, can't say enough thanks for, for coming on and giving me your, your time. Thank you. I love talking cats and this has been fun just as the last time was so thanks for inviting me on again. Of course, thank you.